page 41, session 5, in our series, What's the World Coming to? Before we get into the content of today's lesson, men, we have some uh, books for you, a free book for each man, father or not, just every man in our church. Uh, there's a table with books on it, several titles, so look them over and pick, pick one. And uh, they're all books that will be of, of profit to you. So happy Father's Day, and that's our gift to you for Father's Day. If you look on the back of your notebook, there are some announcements for things that are coming up. And uh, note July 6th is the first Backyard Fellowship. We have two of those, one in July and one in August. The first one is going to be at Larry and Wendy's place in uh, New Boston at 630 and in your program today, we listed what it is we ask you to bring. The church will have the hot dogs and hamburgers, and then we're asking you to bring a side, a dessert, and a two-liter uh, beverage, and those are always a great time. So mark that on your calendar, Wednesday, July 6th at 6.30 at the Mashinskys. July 17th is our next baptism, and uh, we're only a month away then from that. If you have not been baptized uh, the way the Bible uh, tells us to be baptized, then you need to do that. It's something Jesus commands. Now, what's the way that Jesus says to be baptized, or the way the Bible says to be baptized? It is you're immersed in, in water, and uh, to signify, to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of, of Jesus, and to show that you are one who believes in Jesus and the one who died, was buried, and, and rose again. And so if you haven't done that, Jesus says you need to do that, and that's what we help people do here. So see me about that, and we can sit down and talk about what the qualifications are, and uh, I'm not a pressure kind of guy, as I hope you've gathered uh, by this point, but that is something that Jesus commands, so it is something you need to do, and I would love to help you with that, all right? So see me even today before you leave, or send me an email, and we'll set a time to get together to talk about that important matter. And then you see the long-range stuff that's coming up uh, August 26th. Uh, down at the bottom there is our, uh, our Mudhens game that we have at the end of, end of the summer. So uh, mark that on your calendars as well. We'll have the tickets available here in the next couple of weeks for you to, to purchase. All right, we're in the midst of, we finished half of our series, What's the World Coming to? Eight sessions, we've completed four. Today is session number five. Thus far in our series, we've looked at world uh, events. And we started in session one by looking at the fact that God has created the world and God, at the end of the Bible, gives us the, the way the world he made is going to end. And so the world has been created with a purpose, and that purpose is going to be fulfilled by God in the end of the, the story. So session one was this panoramic view of the beginning and the end. But then there's the question of what happens in between. We're in the in-between period from the beginning to the end. And so in session two, we began to look at the events on God's prophetic calendar that are going to occur in order. In session two, the next event to occur, according to the Bible, is something called the rapture. And the rapture is the removal of all of those who have come to Jesus Christ from, from earth. Now, that's not the end of earth, but it's the end of uh, our, our existence on earth as we have it right now. Uh, we will be removed at God's appointed time, unknown to anyone, even the guys who try to predict it and all of that. Unknown at any moment, God can catch up or rapture those who are his, belong to him through Jesus. And we will have new, new bodies at that point. We will be changed. But life on earth will continue. 
which then gives us the next event that we looked at in session three, and that is something called the tribulation. And the Bible uh, designates this seven-year period as a time of difficulty, a time of trial on the earth that is unprecedented, such as has never been seen, Jesus said. So it's called the tribulation, sometimes called the great tribulation. It's spoken of as, as I say, a seven-year period in the first part of your Bible, Daniel chapter 9. It is the 70th, the final period of seven years that God told Daniel uh, were appointed for his people, Israel, to accomplish all that God has for them. Seven-year period described in Daniel 9.27, but also it's uh, referred to in the book of Revelation a number of ways. Uh, often referred to in two halves of those seven years, three and a half years and three and a half years, sometimes 42 months, sometimes 1,260 days. And the reason the seven years is broken into uh, two halves is because in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, uh, the Bible says that one will stand up that the Scripture refers to as the Antichrist, and he will proclaim himself to be God. And he will require worship of himself. And he will engage in an abomination that causes desolation, the Bible says, uh, in, the, in the temple of, of God. That will happen at the midpoint of this seven-year period. And thus the first portion, while still trial, will not be as intense uh, in terms of the, the difficulty for those who remain on earth as will be the final three and a half years, the 42 months, 1260 days. The end of that seven-year period, known as the Tribulation, which we looked at in session three, last week we saw Christ returns. And Christ returns and we return with Him. So remember, if, uh, if we have been raptured and even if we have died prior to the time of the rapture, we'll be resurrected at that point. We'll be reminded of that today. So you will be with the Lord one way or another if you know Jesus. And you'll have been with the Lord for that seven-year period. And at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus returns, comes to earth, and we come with him. And the Bible says that he will do battle against uh, the armies of the earth that have gathered against God's chosen people, Israel, at a place called Har-Megedo or Armageddon. And we know that as the battle of, of Armageddon. And, of course, Jesus will defeat his enemies, and he will set up his kingdom. And there will be the thousand-year kingdom, the millennium. It's Latin for a thousand, and so it's sometimes called the th- just the kingdom or the thousand-year kingdom or the millennium, but that will be inaugurated uh, when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, begins with the battle of Armageddon, and then he establishes his thousand-year kingdom. So those are all world events. You know, that's all stuff that is happening, going to happen in between the time of God's creation and the time of his appointed end, and God has given us a calendar of events in sequence that are going to occur. Today, we're going to look at issues that are more personal in nature. That is, okay, that's a grand scheme, and there's the Antichrist, and there's the Mark of the Beast, and there's Armageddon, and there's all of that. But today gets more personal because it deals with the time that you will die and that I will die. Unless we're alive at the time of the rapture, there will be a day for you to die and for me to die. And the question then is, what is death and what happens after death? And that's what session five has to deal with. Top of page 41, resurrection then and restoration. What happens when we die? 
The experience of death can be a frightening one because of the thought of leaving our lives and loved ones behind and because of fear of the unknown. We've all heard stories of near-death experiences, the stories of seeing lights, someone hovering above his own body, watching the doctors work on him or her. It is likely that all of us have also heard people talk about the good things in the afterlife, that death takes us to a better place, the deceased is better off, and so on. But it's important to see what God says about this because, now notice this, no one actually comes back from the dead and tells us what it was like. So I'd like to beat on that for a little bit. Because uh, from a pastoral standpoint, one of the things that, you know, when my ministry is over, if, if God would allow me to have a group of people that have grown in Him and grown in their knowledge of His Word such that they have developed this just missing jewel in, in, in the church today, something called discernment. A group of people who do not buy everything that the Christian world is selling, who don't buy necessarily the premise of the latest video or book that comes out. And I really want to encourage you all to develop this discipline of discernment, thinking about what people say from a biblical standpoint. Now, I don't remember whether anybody here has said to me, hey, have you read this book? But I get people say that all the time. I'm going to mention a book in a minute. If you did, I forgot. And so I'm not aiming these comments at you personally. I know at least one person somewhere, I just don't know if it's in our church or not, has mentioned this book to me and told me I should read it because it's really cool. But it's, uh, I think the title is, There Really Is a Heaven. And it's like a kid dies and goes to heaven and then has come back to tell us. Now here's the thing. Well, let me give you a couple of things, okay? And, and when I want to give you a couple of things, I want to give them to you from the Bible. So just the title, I haven't read the book, There Really Is a Heaven. See, I already knew that. I already know there's a heaven. I don't need anybody to tell me there's a heaven because Jesus has told me there's a heaven. The Bible has told me there's a heaven. So the idea that, you know, now we really like know, I mean, that's the way I take the title. There really is a heaven. I know you heard about it in Sunday school, but no, it's really true. No, I already know it's true. So I'm already good with that. I don't need anybody to die, go there, and tell me about it. And further, I want you to note something that the Bible says that Jesus said in Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, just listen as we read Luke 16. Luke 16 is this famous story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told. And you remember the rich man had a very good life, but Lazarus was a beggar. One goes to heaven, the other goes to hell. The rich man goes to hell, Lazarus goes to heaven. But for our purposes, and you know, books like people dying, going, and then coming back and telling us, it's interesting. Notice, um, notice what the rich man says in verse 27 as he is in torment in, in hell. Verse 27, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to him, they'll repent. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, you have the Word of God. You have the truth of Scripture. You don't need anybody else to have any other experience to tell you anything you need to know other than what God has told you in Scripture. Now, that's one. But second, you know, if I'm going to get somebody, I mean, okay, let's just say that we need a little extra oomph. We need a little boost to what the Bible tells us about heaven and all that stuff. So if somebody's going to go there and they're going to, you know, tell me, what it's, tell me what it's like, you know, for me at least, a little kid is not the one I'm looking for. Now, here's part of the reason for that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, as I say, I'm not looking for anybody to tell me that. And I don't think you should either. But I'm definitely not looking for a little kid to tell me what heaven's all about so that I can know there really is a heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So as I understand it, you know, some kid, I don't know, is he 8, he's 10, I don't know, he goes to heaven, writes a book, tells us all, all these amazing things about it. So he, he dies, goes to heaven, comes back, writes a book, and tells us about it. Now here's part of the problem I've got with this. See, the Bible actually talks about a guy who went to heaven. And he was a really reliable guy. He wasn't a kid. He was an apostle. His name was Paul. And Paul speaks about this experience, this unique experience that he had in 2 Corinthians 12, but I want you to notice what he says about it. Verse 1, although there's nothing to be gained, I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. And then goes on to talk about the Lord giving him an affliction, a physical affliction to humble him. I, Paul, had this privilege. I can't even, I can't even express it. And he doesn't. Now Paul is caught up to the third heaven and he can't tell us about it. But this kid can write a book and tell you there's really a heaven? Okay, I'll, I'll stop beating on the kid. And I'll stop beating on you if you read the kid's book. But I'm simply trying to tell you, friend, please, 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 there's always somebody with a story. And God has given us his word, and what you need and what I need is his word, and we need the discernment then to filter every claim made through his, through his word. And so that's why we say then, back on page 41, in that third paragraph, middle of that third paragraph, it's important to see what God says about this because no one actually comes back from the dead to tell us what it was like. All right, so what does the Bible tell us 
about death and what does it tell us about resurrection in the afterlife? Fourth paragraph, death is a fact of life, but it is unnatural. When God created the world, He created it without death. Only by sin, death came into the world. And you all know the story that God had warned Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day they ate of it, they would, they would die. Now, they did not, as you all know, if you read the story, they ate, but they did not physically die. But God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. So how do you harmonize those? On the one hand, they lived physically many years thereafter, but God said, in the day you do that, you will die. Well, we're going to see on the next page that the Bible defines death in a particular way that will explain that for us. Second to the last paragraph there on page 41, the Bible says that it's appointed to man once to die and after this, the judgment. That means that death is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. There's no such thing as reincarnation where you come back in a second life or a third life, no second chances to redo something or fix something after death. When we die, life is over. Just another reason. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after you once die, then you have the, then you have the judgment which, which follows that. So what is death? Bottom of page 41. At its very basic meaning, it is separation. By looking at the biblical teaching about death, we can see that quite easily. And the Bible speaks of three kinds of death, spiritual and physical and eternal. And this will explain how it is that Adam and Eve died but lived on physically. There is, of course, physical death. And physical death could be defined as separation. It's all separation. But physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. So at, at, at physical death, our spirit is separated from our body. Jesus was on the cross. You remember he cried out, Father, into thy hands I commend my, my spirit. And then he breathed his last, the Bible tells us. And so physical death is separation, separation of the spirit from, from the body. But then there is, there is spiritual death. And Adam and Eve did not experience physical death on the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, but they did experience spiritual death. And that is also separation, but it is separation of the individual from God. So in that day, Adam and Eve were separated from the God for whom they were made and with whom they enjoyed fellowship and communion prior to breaking His command. That separation was symbolized in them being removed from the garden and not being allowed to come back into the garden and cherubim with flashing swords at the entrance to the garden so that they couldn't come back in. And the Bible tells us, lest they enter back in and eat of the tree of life. And eat of the tree of life and live forever in this sinful condition. And so they were banished from the garden, separated from God. And all of their children come into the world spiritually dead. So when you hear us as preachers, you read in the Bible about being spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. When you hear that, it's speaking of our separation from God as individuals. And everyone who comes into the world is born into the world separated from God, everyone. That means that everyone then needs to have a relationship with God restored. That separation needs to be reconciled. And that's what the good news of the gospel is about, that Jesus Christ is the one who affects that for us. So there's physical death, separation of the spirit from the body, spiritual death, separation of the individual from God, and then the third kind of death is eternal death. 
And eternal death is the separation of the individual from God forever. That is, time is up. No more chances. You have not received God's gift of eternal life, and therefore the conclusion then is just actually a continuation of the separation that you already came into the world having. But now that is cemented, that is secured, that will go on forever. If one does not receive the gift, the free gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. And so what is death? That's what death is, separation, three kinds of death. Now, one dies then, there is the separation of the spirit from, from the body. One dies physically. So someone dies today, if they are a Christian, then their spirit goes to, goes to be with, with Jesus, awaiting the resurrection of the body, which will be reunited with their spirit. And that's what gives rise to the phrase at the bottom of page 42 the intermediate state. Intermediate, meaning there's a time sort of in the middle. There's a time where we have, we have died physically. Spirit has been separated from the body. Spirit is with the Lord. Body awaits reunification with the spirit, and you're in this intermediate state. And that's what's at the bottom of page 42. Second paragraph there. After death, people exist in an intermediate state about which the Bible says tells us very little. The person who dies in Christ, that is, having been saved from their sins by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is immediately present with the Lord Jesus in heaven. And the Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 5, as we have listed there for you. If you look on page 43, so you're in this, you're in this intermediate state. The Bible tells us very little about it, and so there's not a whole lot of profit in you speculating or me speculating about it. There are some who believe that there is an intermediate body that you're given. The Bible doesn't tell you that. So that's speculation. That might be true. It might not be true. I don't really care much. You know, sorry. So if you're looking for like a pastor who wants to like play speculation, I'm not your guy. Okay. I, I've, got, I've got enough stuff God does tell me that I need to learn how to live than worrying about the stuff he doesn't tell me. Okay. But I at least know what the questions are. And I've heard all the questions or most of them. And that's one of the questions. Do we have an intermediate, intermediate body? The Bible doesn't say. It says that we are with the Lord immediately. It is better, says Paul, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we are waiting a time then for the unification of the body with the Spirit. In the second paragraph on page 43, Christ has conquered death for us. When he rose from the grave, therefore for the believer, death is a glorious freedom from the corruption of this life with all of its sickness and sadness to the glory of heaven with Jesus. And so we are going to, because of his resurrection, as we'll see a down payment on our own resurrection, our body and our spirit will be reunited. And we will have a new body, a gloriously changed body, free of all the impediments of sin and sickness and, and of course, death. Well, one of the effects that that ought to have for you, just don't give you a practical effect of that truth, that my physical death is not the end. And as a Christian, my physical death is not only not the end, but is actually a gateway into this glorious existence. What practical effect ought that to have on you? You know, friend, you need not fear death. 
And this is the reason that Christians throughout history have been able to do things that are like unbelievable to us. They've been able to have courage in the face of great danger. They've been able to stand for Jesus in the face of death. Why? Why are you able to do that? Because death is a gateway. Death is not the end. So you, friend, and, and I, we should not have death as something that we, that we fear and that we dread. There is all of the stuff that goes with that. I understand that. All of the human connections and, you know, are my affairs in order and will my family be taken care of? And those are all, those are all true and those are all good things for us to prepare for. But in terms of our own death and our ability to have courage in the face of trial and persecution and difficulty, we are able to have that, not because we're superhero Christians, but because we know this is not the end. Quite the contrary, it's the gateway to a glorious existence with Christ. Now, that's not the case for the one who does not know Christ. And Take a look, if you would, at the third paragraph there. However, for the one who dies without coming to salvation, by faith alone in Christ alone. The picture is far different. To die is not even for the unbeliever. It is, does not mean a secession of our existence, and it does not mean we go to a better place. And just as a aside here, has anyone ever heard, been to a funeral, ever, where, the, where it was ever said that anything other than they went to a better place? And you think about it, if every funeral you've ever been to, if every funeral all of us have ever been to, everybody goes to a better place. Who is it that doesn't go to a better place? But the Bible actually says, you know, there are people who don't go to a better place. As a matter of fact, the Bible says most people don't go to a better place. You remember narrow is the way? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there will be who travel it. So the idea that everybody goes to heaven, or that he was a nice guy and he went to heaven, is, is not what the Bible teaches. It is a matter of those who have come and been rescued and delivered from this, their sin and the penalty of that sin by Jesus Christ, and only those who will avoid then the penalty of an eternal existence, which is not a better place. In the middle of that paragraph, for the one who dies not knowing Christ, this earth, no matter how bad it gets, is as good as it gets. Luke 16, to which we alluded, tells of a rich man who died, went to hell, was conscious, in conscious torment with no relief. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Being in torment, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So while the Scriptures tell, do not tell us much about the intermediate state, it tells us enough to know that for the believer in Christ, this earth is as bad as it gets, since he or she will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. Now let me just, this earth is as bad as it gets. Have you ever thought about that? Now if I wanted to write a book called Your Best Life Now, I just want you to think about that. Your best life now. The only way your best life could be now is if you're going to hell. Am I right? You would think people would just maybe think about that. One, before they write the book, give the title of the book, and then people buy the book and read the thing. 
But for the Christian, your best life is not now. This is as bad as it gets. And your best life is yet to come. For the unbeliever, end of that paragraph, this earth is as good as it gets since he or she will immediately be in the fiery punishment of hell. Now, we'll talk about hell and how that can be reconciled with a loving God in our next session, okay? So there's the resurrection itself. There's the intermediate state. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death is the separation of the spirit from the body, but the body will be reunited with the spirit in what we know as the resurrection. So let's look at what the Bible says about resurrection. It talks of a day of resurrection in which all the dead will be raised bodily from their graves, wherever they might be, and given an eternal body. Everyone will ultimately be resurrected, some to eternal life in heaven, some to eternal judgment. But not all will be resurrected at the same time. The first resurrection was, of course, Christ. The most significant resurrection, uh, the first, and I should say the most significant resurrection, and the first true resurrection. The reason I'm hesitating there is, you know, Jesus in John 11 raised Lazarus. But Lazarus died again. But Jesus is raised and, of course, uh, never, to die, never to die again. So the most significant resurrection is the resurrection of Christ. This resurrection is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts at the beginning of your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, having paid the penalty for sin, rose from the dead to live eternally as a victor over sin and death. When he rose, Christ conquered death and rendered death powerless over those who are saved by him. And the Bible tells us that in a number of places, Acts chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 2 on page 44. And the most significant passage in the Bible about this issue of resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15, known as the resurrection chapter, because the entire 58 verses, 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15 are devoted to this issue of the resurrection. And one of the key points is that Christ is called there the first fruits of the resurrection. We have 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 24 quoted for you there. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After those, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. Christ is the first fruits, and the first fruits were the very first part of the harvest that would come in. In the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, these were given to God as an act of worship and dependence on him for the rest of the harvest. And so the first fruits were the indication of more to come, a sort of down payment on the rest. And so Christ is the down payment, the guarantee of our own resurrection. And so Jesus told his first followers, you see listed there, John 14, because I live, you will live also. And then over the next half page or so, we talk about, but what if Jesus did not raise? Now, those who are Christians believe he did. And if you are a, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the reasons you get immersed in water in baptism is to show I believe in his death and his burial and I believe in his resurrection. But is the resurrection absolutely necessary? Well, it's a, and belief in the resurrection, absolutely necessary. Well, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that is all about the resurrection, says in verse number 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith 
that is your belief, that is all that you claim to be true and believe, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile, vain, empty, means nothing. And so Easter is a really important memorial for us, remembrance for us, isn't it? Every Sunday, as a matter of fact, should be a very important because we call it the Lord's Day. Do you know why we call it the Lord's Day? It's, it's the day. It's not just the day that belongs to the Lord, but it's the day that the Lord was raised. The first day of the week. All four of the Gospels tell us about the resurrection, and they tell us, they all tell us that it occurred on the first day of the week. Now, here's why that's important. It's important because the Bible says it. It's also important because, notice page 45. Top of page 45, Paul, who wrote this resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, what Paul does here is he lists a number of evidences of the fact that Jesus was physically raised from the the dead. And he was seen by all of these witnesses. He even says there in verse number 6, that he was seen uh, at one time by uh, about 500 brethren, and then adds the phrase, most of whom are still alive. Now, why does he say that? So you can ask them, the first readers. You could ask them. They saw him. And he lists uh, a fairly extensive list of people who saw him alive. Now, so important is this issue of Christ having actually been, been raised that Paul gives this ev- these evidences of that. And one of, one of the evidences that Jesus is actually raised from the dead is that we worship Him today, Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, why is that an evidence? Because prior to that first Easter, when did people worship? What day of the week? The seventh day of the week, on Saturday. And to this day, no one has come up with an explanation as to how centuries of worship on the seventh day of the week suddenly changed to the first day of the week. And the only plausible explanation is the one given by the Bible. That's the day Jesus raised. That's the day Jesus was seen. And that's the day then that we call the Lord's Day. We're celebrating His his resurrection. Let me just uh, give you another another point that has been helpful to me. It may not be helpful to you. That's okay. But sometimes if folks want to debate the resurrection, ultimately they're going to have to believe the Bible, as we've already seen, about the afterlife and so on. But just in terms of, just in terms of external evidence, things like the Lord's Day being on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. And so we are no longer under a Sabbath. You all, guys, you all good with that? So we're not under the Sabbath anymore, Okay. Uh, Paul, Paul says in Romans 14, don't let anybody judge you with regard to a particular day. We're not under that anymore. So we don't call Sunday the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. It's the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. 
But if some are inclined to debate you about that, another external proof of Jesus' resurrection is the fact that all of these people who claim to have seen him gave their life for that claim. Now you say, I've known all kinds of wacky people that have given their lives for all kinds of claims. But see, in this case, these people would have given their life for something they know to be untrue. You hear that? They would have known it to be untrue because they actually claimed to have touched him and talked to him and ate with him. And at different times, different people, not just one big hallucination by a bunch of people who were smoking weed or something. Different people, different times, different backgrounds, different circumstances who claimed to see him. And they were so sure of that claim that they were willing to give their lives for what they saw. Most people who are martyred are martyred for a belief that they hold, but not something that they claim they, could, they saw with their own eyes and could prove. And so the martyrs of Jesus are martyrs who would have been the only martyrs I know of in history who would have died not for what they believed to be true, but rather for what they would have known to be a lie. And that's quite different. So then you have this series then of resurrections. The most important is the resurrection of Jesus himself, the down payment guarantee of our resurrection, the first fruits. But then there is what we call the first resurrection. We call it the first resurrection. It's not Jesus' resurrection, but rather the first resurrection now of those who are followers of Jesus. But we distinguish that from the last resurrection because all the resurrections are not going to happen at the same time. There'll be a resurrection of those who belong to God through Jesus, and there'll be a resurrection at the end of those who do not. And that's the distinction made here on page 45, the first resurrection. This will happen at the second coming, and the first event in the overall second coming of Christ, stretching from the rapture to His, his return, is the dead in Christ at the rapture at the bottom of page 45. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those who are alive at the time of, his, of, his, of the rapture will be caught up together with them. All the dead in Christ will raise at the rapture. That would, be, that would be first. But then notice a second, page 46. From the rapture to the return, the second coming, encompassing the, the, the tribulation, you have the resurrection of those who have died in Jesus, but then you have in the middle of the tribulation two witnesses for Christ who have been killed. And the Bible says their bodies will lie in the streets for three days. People will celebrate their death, but after three and a half days they'll be raised from the dead and taken to heaven, Revelation 11. So you have the resurrection of believers in Jesus at the time of the rapture. Three and a half years into the tribulation, you have these two witnesses. And then you have Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, speaks of, speaks of that. And so those who died but were true believers, but died before the time of, time of Christ. And they are raised at the end of the tribulation. And then those who are killed during the tribulation, because of their faith in Christ... They've come to Christ, they've died because of that faith, and they die at the end of the, or excuse me, are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. By the way, it says uh, at the top of page 46, the two witnesses at the middle of the resurrection, that should be tribulation, at the middle of the tribulation. 
And the fact that nobody caught that suggests to me that you have all checked out a long time ago. It's okay with me. You know, it'll all be on a big screen at the judgment seat. It's all right. And I'll be looking at it going, I cannot believe you slept through all of those lessons that I gave you. I don't think there'll be a big screen, but it would be really cool if there was. Page 47. Then there's the resurrection at the end. Where the first resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life, this is a resurrection to eternal judgment in hell. It's a resurrection of all those who did not trust Christ for salvation. It's found in Revelation chapter, chapter 20. And as I said, next week we'll talk about eternal punishment, we'll talk about hell, and some of the questions that are raised and understandably raised because of that, okay? Now, what kind of bodies are we going to have in the, in the resurrection? Well, we're going to have, the Bible tells us, a body fitted for its purpose, suited for its eternal purpose, so it can't decay. It's going to be a glorified body. Uh, but it will be a body, I am convinced, that uh, looks like you, that you'll be known, that you will be able to recognize me and I'll be able to recognize you. My memory will be healed and I'll remember you and you'll remember me. Now, why am, I, why am I convinced of that? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives this illustration of, of seeds that go into the ground. But each seed comes up in a particular way and is displayed and is known in a particular way. And the illustration suggests to us that our, our bodies that are raised are going to look in a, a particular way. The seed goes into the ground, but a way that is identifiable. Further, you know, Jesus resurrection body. Uh, Jesus was, was known. Uh, the, the disciples were so distraught, you know, that not immediately they don't, they don't recognize him, but ultimately he shows himself to Thomas. Y'all remember that? And further, it's not, it's not, just, it's not this like scary ghostly body. You know, you're not a ghost. Remember Jesus ate after his resurrection. We will have bodies, and we will have bodies that will actually do things. We'll actually, we'll actually work for God in the kingdom and in heaven. So we think about heaven as just this floating around existence. It's not all that appealing, frankly. You're just sort of floating around. I mean, you can only take like a hammock for so long. You're on a cloud that's just kind of floating around. Uh, are you kidding me? A harp? And it's, that's just the way, we, that's the way we view it. But the truth is we're going to have bodies, bodies that will function, and bodies with which we will serve the Lord. And we will do in the new heavens and the new earth the things that we were made to do originally, serving God and serving before Him with and uh, through our bodies. So we will have bodies by which we were known, suited for their purpose, no decay, no death, of course, and most important, no sin as, as well. There'll be the destruction of the old heavens and the old earth recorded in Second Peter chapter 3. And then if you look on page 48, we'll conclude. So what does all that mean for us then? There is the promise and the down payment, the guarantee on the part of the Lord Jesus of our resurrection. So because of that resurrection and coming destruction... How should we live? Three, three points and then we're done. First, we must live with an awareness of the reality of God and the fact that our sin, no matter how much we may like it, 
has broken our relationship with God and will cause us to fall under the judgment of God. God has given this warning of destruction, of a resurrection, but a resurrection unto eternal death. He gives that warning. We should have that understanding then, keenly aware of the reality of the consequences of sin. Second, recognize that the only hope of rescue, deliverance, escape from that judgment is the life and death of Jesus. He came to be everything we should have been, and He died the death we should have died. So that, now, now get this, so that we can have life and hope and forgiveness through Him. Our good works are not enough. Our best efforts fall short. Only in Christ is there hope. And then third with that, there is the destruction our sins deserve. There is the work that Christ has done on our behalf. So what do we do thirdly? Turn to Christ. Trust Him alone for salvation from sin and eternity and trust Him for eternity in heaven. Nothing else and no one else can bridge the gap between us and God that our sin has created. By calling out to Christ and asking Him to deliver us, rescue us, save us from our sin, we can have the promise of eternal life. The spiritual death we talked about earlier that we're all born into can be overcome only by the life that God gives us through Christ. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Thanks be to God. And so, friend, we're going to close in prayer. Let those of us who have been spiritually resurrected, I mean, that's what that verse talks about. You've been spiritually raised from being spiritually dead. And it is those and only those who have been spiritually raised from their spiritual dead condition who will be physically raised to eternal life. Those who remain spiritually dead will then be raised, yes, but not to eternal life, but to eternal death. And so those of us who have had that spiritual resurrection because we've been saved, rescued, delivered, from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin, one day from the presence of sin. Let's thank God for that. Those of you that have never done that, you have that opportunity now. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord. You're the master. You're the Lord. You're the master because you're the creator. You are God. And so we acknowledge you as our God. And Lord, we acknowledge you not only as our Lord, our master, the creator, but we're so thankful that you're our savior, that you came to earth to do what we couldn't, that you lived the life we were supposed to. You lived the life that Adam was created to live. And so in the, the last Adam, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can become what we were made to be. We thank you that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. We thank you that Jesus has lived that life that we should have lived and his life is applied to us when we come to him. So that then we can stand free from the, the penalty of sin and we can stand before our holy God, the one for whom we were made, and we can stand before him complete in the Lord Jesus. We thank you. We thank you, those of us who have at a point in time come to you 
Not because we were smart. Not because we knew a good deal when we, when we heard it. But because you and your mercy moved upon our hearts through your spirit. You brought someone somehow to give us the good news of the gospel. That is all you're doing. Our salvation is all of your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the difference that, it's, that it makes every day of our lives. That we know that death is not the end. That we know that this is as bad as it gets. And we look forward. We look forward to the promise of eternal life with you. And Lord, I pray for any dear ones here who have never come to rescue, deliverance, salvation through the Lord Jesus. I pray that they might be doing that right now. I'm asking, Lord God, your spirit to move upon their hearts, to show them their need, perhaps for the, for the very first time. Their eyes are now opened to who they are and, and where they are in relation to you. And they see the free gift of salvation offered in Jesus. I pray that they embrace that. And you begin this change from the inside out in them that you have begun in us. We thank you for the promise of your word. That he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. We look forward to the completion of our salvation when we are at home with the Lord forever in our glorified bodies. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you and be your ambassadors in your world. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.